Hashtag Enya Nation. Shout out to all the Coffee Breaker faithful who I still appreciate very, very much. Enya, I like her a lot. My name is Brian Oak. This is episode 29 of The Brian Oak Show, which it's hard to imagine. We're that far into double digits already, but it's very enjoyable. And here we are recording in the Smart Start MN Studios. And it's good to be here as we delve a little further into all female February. I know that March is supposedly International Women's Month, but the fact that we only give women a month is ludicrous. I think it's very silly and it made me mad and I decided it's all female February because I more of a marketing guy myself. I liked the double <laughs> F's in there. The alliteration really sounded very good to me. But thanks to Smart Start MN. Smart Start MN, the original Ignition Interlock Company in Minnesota. These are the guys who came up with it. Mike and Ed are good friends of the show. They jumped on board before the show even began. And Sean and I both know them well. Oh, by the way, hello, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm okay. Smart Start MN, what that means is if you or someone you know or a distant relative has a DUI, which we hope never happens, but if it does, these are the guys that can get you back in your vehicle well, well, well before you otherwise normally would or so I've read in some of the more popular publications out there. Sean, how do people get a hold of Smart Start? Uh, what they need to do is go to smartstartmn.com slash the Brian Oak Show. It's important to go through there because then they can track to see how this whole advertising thing is working. Because if they don't think that anybody cares about this show, <laughs> and I know a handful of people do, but let's find out how many, but they need to know it as well because they're the ones writing actual checks. Exactly. And if you go to that domain, you will get 20% off the install. Now, whether this is for you, a family friend, a stranger, please pass it along if you can. Absolutely. So share and amplify, and thank you very much to Smart Start MN. And, Sean, before we start talking any more about All-Female February or get to this episode's guest, who I'm very excited to get a chance to talk to. We met in passing, I think, once many, many, many moons ago, uh, but I'm excited to find out much more because I think her story is fascinating. Um, tell me, you are also a sponsor of this show. Sean Bernard, in addition to being a producer extraordinaire and a 25-year-plus friend of mine, is a a realtor and you work for Edina Realty at the 50th in France office. Now, for some people that might be off-putting. They're like, oh, well, la-ti-da, nothing but mansions <laughs> for this guy. But that's not true. You serve the whole metro, yeah? Yeah, the whole metro, uh, you know, various ranges of, of houses. And really, I just want to... I mean, anywhere from half a million dollars to $500 million, am I right? <laughs> Actually, I just looked at one that was 200000 on on Saturday. So There are houses worth 200000 Believe thought, it or not, I this was it, a townhouse. I, yeah. I thought things were bouncing back. Well, this was a two-bedroom townhouse in Shakopee. Will you explain something for me? And again, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to get derailed. So uh, after the recession, I yes. bought my house at the peak of the housing boom. I sold yes. my very first house, which I bought for under a hundred grand. Oh. Now, granted, it was a cracker box, yeah. but I sold it for significantly more than that and then felt very good about things. I'm like, you know, you hear the old British phrase, safe as houses. So you're like, well, I'll just put all this money into this new one. Probably not wildly out of my price range. It was on the same block in South Minneapolis. So it's not like it's super fancy, but then the recession came and it immediately lost $75,000 in value, yet 
somehow Minneapolis found a way to make sure that my property taxes went up every single year. How is that? Explain that math to you me. You should have uh, reached out and talked to whoever was assessing the taxes. Yeah. Is the truth of it. You can actually fight that. You can go in and say, no, 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 no. No, the value did not go up 80000 you know. Yeah. This is, I can show you comps. What you do is you pull, you have your realtor, you do it yourself. You can go. Uh, pull your comps to kind of see where, where the neighborhood is compared to your house. Well, luckily, it only took me 17 years for my house to get back up to the value that it was at before, <laughs> and now it's finally starting to go up. Sure. If people want to talk to you about buying or selling a house, because spring is coming, whether we like it or not. I know we just got a bunch of snow. I know we go through cold snaps, and it's been a relatively speaking mild winter, but spring is upon us. If people want to get a hold of you and start thinking about moving, whether they want to acquire a home or sell a home, how do they find you? Uh, they can call me or text me at 612-859-2594. Uh, it's best to just sit down and have a conversation and have me do some homework to see if it even makes sense. Right. I talked to somebody last night, and they said they're probably two years out. I said, that's okay. At least we know where you're at, and you kind of understand the value of your house. The other thing is, I said, I can't promise you that two years from now, the market's going to be as much of a seller's market. What goes up must come down, and it's just the way it is uh, with real estate. And so... You're always kind of playing that game a little bit. But you got to move when it's right for your family. In this case, she's got a 16-year-old that will be out of the house in two years. I said, yeah, that sounds like a better time for you to to move. All right, very good. Well, Sean is thoughtful. Sean does do his homework, and I like him. So if you want to get a hold of him, you're thinking about a move or moving your home, let him know. It is the Brian Oak Show, and it is all-female February. And the thing that sort of made me angry about this is just I, I, I can't pin it down to one thing you know since I've been young I've had great female friends I have a mom I have a sister I have a wife I have fantastic female friends I have a daughter who who's my whole world and um it's got to change right and so granted the efforts put forth on this little show are probably not going to change the world but telling the stories of women i feel helps inform us and helps us grow and helps us get stronger and be better and understand that every single bipedal form walking around this planet is the same thing we are all human beings and so we are going to get to tonight's guest rabbi zimmerman from temple israel in South Minneapolis, which is not only a gorgeous facility, but is a congregation with a 140-year-old history in this community, and she has helped bring it into the 21st century in a really incredible way. So I'm excited to talk to her. Last thing I want to get to before we hear our first song is... um, I see. I don't know if you see what's on my head right here. I do. Yeah, no, I know I look like I got hit by a shovel. When's the last time you (laughs) dished deeply on the ice? Um, I've done the matrix a few times, you know, where you kind of go back yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and do that, but I haven't fallen on the ice it's since I went to the hospital for that reason. Well, I hurt my back badly about eight years ago, which isn't funny, but I was out jogging, which might be funny to you. And I, it was great. It was great. It was great. I hit an icy patch and just went down and really hurt my back. It so. happens. And we're all Minnesotans. We're used to it. I'm not complaining about winter or the ice. I actually kind of love winter because then spring is even more glorious when it arrives. I haven't really properly dished on the ice since my daughter was an infant. And as my legs started to splay out, uh, yeah. like opposite wishbone style, I intentionally found an inner strength I didn't know I had to stop from dropping my infant child on the ice and 
but I really did bad things to my legs back then. So this this right wheel is not good these days. But it was just last Thursday evening I was walking up to the house, feeling a little overconfident. The roads, having not been properly plowed with all the light snowfalls, had melted, frozen, melted, frozen. And I hit a patch of ice. And usually you can get your arms out in front of you fast enough. And <laughs> this time I just, like a mannequin in a department store, dipped over and biffed my head on one of those ice berms down there, and I I got up and I looked around and no one saw, but somehow I remain embarrassed to this very moment. Well, you're Irish like I am, so your head, you know, weighs so much that it reaches the ground before your hands, just the way it is being Irish. Also, I have this protruding Cro-Magnon-like <laughs> skull that... Um, I. It, it, if there's one place I could hit on the ice that will not get hurt, it's literally right here on my dome. You know, uh, let's let, let's move on because I do want to get to tonight's guest or this episode's guest. I um the one thing I was going to say is I I I I've, I've lost my fascination with the Oscars. I've lost my fascination with award shows in general. I like music, so I will watch the Grammys and I tried to watch the Oscars. I tried to get excited last night. I tried to pay some attention, but I just couldn't get there. And the only thing that held any appeal for me is because she was down there in the front rows is Janelle Monae, who I think is one of the most 21st century artists we've had, well, for lack of a better descriptor, in the 21st century. I have to say, I was skeptical going in, but Billie Eilish singing the Beatles yesterday... It was great. ...was absolutely stellar. Yep. And the way that she did it, I thought it was fantastic. Well, she, and then and that occurred to me, because I did watch that as well, because that was during the in-memoriam part, where they remember all of sort of the Hollywood greats who have passed in the last year. And I watched it, and I was also extremely skeptical. I'm like, I'm like you're so young, and this is a <laughs> this is a big song to tackle. Not that you're not capable, but whew. Yeah. But here's the thing. She's gone from being a sensation to being a genuine star. You know, she swept the Grammy. She took all four of the major awards. She is something that is the product of the newest generation of what we have. She's the first artist born in the 21st century to go number one with her album. And she she has confidence that belie her years. She was incredible. <laughs> My son comes into the living room. He's like, Dad, she made these songs in her bedroom with her brother like I can't believe she did all this. Yeah. She's only two years older than I am. I'm like, you have some work to do. Yeah. Time son. To, to get after <laughs> Let's it. go. Right. Come on. How about a little inspiration? Well, last year in 20, pardon me, not last year, but the year prior in 2018, my favorite song of that entire year was Dirty Computer. I believe that Janelle Monet is equally of the 21st century. She's one of my very, very favorites. Right after we hear this, we're going to feature tonight's guest, Rabbi Zimmerman. But first, a little Janelle Monet on The Brian Oak Show. <laughs> Baby, don't make me spell it out for ya. All of the feelings that I got for ya. Can't be explained, but I can try for ya. Yeah, baby, don't make me spell it out for ya. You keep on asking me the same questions. Why? And second guessing all my intentions. Should know by the way I use my compression. That you got the answers to my confessions It's like I'm powerful with a little bit of tender An emotional sexual bender Mess me up, yeah, but no one does it better There's nothing better That's just the way you make me feel 
Someone who only has three full-length albums under her belt. Also, some film credits to her. She's she's so dynamic, and she's so amazing, and I don't know. I can't think of anyone else. So, like, Billie Eilish is impressive, right? But when we talk about Janelle Monet, I can't think of a peer that she has in the last few years. I, it's just, I, I, I'm continually impressed, and the Arc Android, the, elect, uh, the Electric Lady, and Dirty Computer still remain in heavy rotation at Stately Oak Manor. It is the Brian Oak Show. Hi, I am Brian Oak. That's Sean Bernard. And it's time to bring this evening's guest into the conversation, Rabbi Zimmerman, who is the main rabbi at Temple Israel in South Minneapolis. Now, I have been inside the beautiful, beautiful facility they have there only one time for about mitzvah celebration years ago, and it is wonderful. And the celebrations were fantastic, and it is a congregation that has had a history, and maybe I don't have the timeline entirely right. I believe it's 140 years old, but I'm not entirely certain. But she also happens to be the first female rabbi to head a congregation this large, and I find that a wildly impressive feat. Rabbi, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. Okay, very good. I'm okay. I'm not bad at all. Let me ask you a really important question, Uh, maybe the most important question I'll ask you during this entire interview. Have you ever biffed on the ice really hard in a Minnesota winter? (laughs) We're back to that subject. (laughs) Yeah. it was well, a I commonality, it's something we all share. I have fallen yes. on the ice without question. Okay. But 
thank goodness, haven't hit my head yeah. quite yet. Well, I mean, again, as Sean mentioned, with the size of our skulls, <laughs> there's probably nowhere safer to be hit. So tell me a little bit, if you don't mind, about before we go any deeper into your path, where do you come from? Where where were you born and, and what was your childhood like? And again, I'm not trying to get super deep, just sort of a the elevator speech version. I can do that. I can do that. Um, so I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, or Missouri, as yes. most Missourians say. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was one of three girls. I was the youngest. And um, I grew up there in the 60s and 70s and then came to McAllister College in 1977. And what, brought, what made you think Minnesota is where I'm going to college? Well, it really was McAllister. I don't think I really knew much about Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Let me be clear. Okay, certainly. Um, But I'm still here. I know, which we're going to get to for sure, because that's an interesting distinction. It's an interesting distinction. So um, McAllister did a lot of recruiting in my high school, and I came with probably about mm, eight to ten others from my high school, which is kind of a crew, and I loved it. I loved Minnesota. I loved McAllister College. It was um, really my coming of age, so it was wonderful. I'm probably going to step in it several times tonight, but for me, that's the point of not only all-female February, but doing these interviews. I'm always trying to learn. I'm trying to gain more perspective. McAllister is, I know it's a private school. Is it a Christian school? It is. It's Presbyterian. And so you, being Jewish, what was the appeal to going to a Presbyterian school in a state you hadn't been to before? So, very interesting question. I grew up in a 70% Jewish high school. So, the idea of being a minority was never any bit of my reality. I've been told Jews are minority, but I didn't experience it till I came to McAllister College. And then all of a sudden, it was like I was meeting people who had never met a Jew before. I was shocked. Minnesota's like that, isn't I it? I was shocked. Uh-huh. But what's amazing is that it helped me answer some basic questions that I never had to answer before. And it really strengthened my own connection to my tradition and my culture. You know, Judaism isn't just a religion. Right. And that's what's really hard for people to understand is that Judaism is an ethnicity, a culture, a people. And a religion, because it was way before there was sort of that compartmentalization where religion could be in some way separated from your culture and ethnicity. Literally millennia ago. And so I was going to get to that later, but now I feel almost compelled since you brought it up for the... is goy still an acceptable word, or is that insulting? It's kind of insulting. Okay, not to not to Jews. Well, but no, to but to who people aren't. who aren't. <laughs> yeah. So fine. That's why I asked. So for, so for those of us who are not steeped in the long and proud tradition of Judaism, yeah, I wanted to ask you, and this is one of the areas I thought I was going to step in it. Is it? Is it? Is it? A, is it a racial thing? Is it a cultural thing? Is it? Is it religious? And it's. It sounds like it's probably all of those things. Well, it's. It's a complicated thing, yeah. you know, because in this world that we live in today, things are put into their compartments. So you can be Make- Irish Catholic, you could be Roman Catholic, <laughs> you could be Italian Catholic, and somehow now 
no one kind of says is I'm Catholic. No one talks about the culture anymore. Judaism and Jews continue to sort of feel that connection to culture in a way that's changing and evolving in the 21st century, just what you were talking about as far as the music. Um, So how do you put an ancient tradition into the 21st century? It has been an amazing journey throughout every century, throughout every decade. Judaism has had to find a way to evolve and to grow and to become relevant. And to also survive, though, because in addition to being amazing, it's also been a harrowing journey through many of those phases, right? Mm -hmm. It's harrowing even today with the rise of anti-Semitism, right? We are going to talk about that in a minute. Before we get to where we're at today, because I think that there are reasons to be alarmed on so many fronts, not just for Jewish people, but for everyone, although recently there's been a spate of really terrible atrocities committed. I want to get to that, but first I want to find out a little bit more about you, if you don't mind. So you grow up, you come to, I'm sorry, did you say McAllister? Mm -hmm. All right, so you are a young Jew going to McAllister. When did you first feel the call to your faith? Now, I'm sure you felt your faith strongly your whole life, but it, there's, a, there's a huge difference for anybody of any denomination to feel, the, you know, to feel a strength in their faith, but then decide that this was going to be their path. When did you first feel that call? So the first woman was ordained in 1972. In 1977, I was at McAllister, and a woman who was in seminary came and did a program at the Hebrew house at McAllister College. I had never met a female rabbi. I didn't know that women, it passed me by that that historic moment because literally in the first 10 years of women being ordained, there were only one or two women in each of those classes. And many of them didn't really go into the congregational rabbinate or into the rabbinate. So it was really interesting. There were so few people, so few women out there. So I saw this woman who was in seminary and I was like, oh my God, that is amazing. I went home, called my parents in St. Louis. My father answered. I said, I just met this female rabbi, our rabbinical student. And he said, you don't want to do that. Mm. (laughs) And that was my first green light to going to the right <laughs> no, no do you think do you think he was saying that because he I mean, because the tradition is so ancient and he's just like this isn't what happens or I mean, he it threatened his beliefs or do you think that he thought he was protecting you when he said don't do that i think the the latter mm-hmm. that he was protecting me um on the other hand i think underneath it there was that, that's not done. What do you mean? So I think that you, both of them played, but it presented itself as a protection. Wow. It, it was just, it, so, and when you said you met this woman and you were deeply inspired, it's one thing to be inspired, but again, there there aren't really, even among, you know, both Sean and I grew up in the Catholic tradition, and I grew up in what I would consider in the 80s, even a, a relatively, if there is such a thing, it sounds so dichotomous to me now, but it, it, a relatively liberal Catholic parish, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to some of the more strict mm-hmm. and orthodox type places. Mm-hmm. But for when you meet a, a young woman who is is 
ordained as a rabbi, there's not a lot of places they're going to be like, sure, come on over and do this. So, I mean, that wasn't daunting to you. Did you, once you met her, did you then say, I'm doing this? This is my thing? Well, it took me a few more years first to graduate college. Mm-hmm. That needed to happen first. Right. And then um, I worked in the River Room at Dayton's downtown St. Paul and <laughs> looked deeply into my soul uh, <laughs> and said, I do not want to do this for life, yeah, that's yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, and so I I started applying. And I think I didn't worry about the obstacles or the hurdles that would come my way. It's kind of who I am. Um, in some ways, a bit fearless. In some ways, despite the fear, I like the challenge. Um, and that's kind of the maverick personality. That's why when my dad said, you don't want to do that, the maverick in me said, oh, yes, I do. And I will. Um, so I have a very maverick personality. So don't tell me I can't do something because it doesn't usually work in your favor um, unless you want me to do it. Then go for it. Uh, reverse, reverse, reverse psychology. Yes, it is. And so for me, it really, um, I just didn't worry. I knew what was very clear to me was that I wanted to study Judaism and that the actual um, training was as exciting to me as the end product. And to me, that really made this journey great. For you, so one last thing, and then I know Sean has a question. Um, so did you approach your rabbinical training? Is that the right word, rabbinical? Mm-hmm. Did you re- approach it from a more spiritual or a more scholarly angle, or do you mm-hmm. feel that it was an equal mix of the two? Or you give me a percentage if you feel like that's appropriate. Yeah. But I think I, I know that for a lot of people who explore, it, a lot of it's history as imp- is as important as the spiritual end of it. And I'm just wondering what end appealed to you the most. So I think both of them together, um, and I think that is the beauty of ancient traditions, is that there isn't this sort of bifurcation of this or that. It's both and. And that to me was very exciting and interesting and ultimately rewarding. And how old were you when you traveled to Israel? So my first time that I went to Israel, which was a very coming of age experience as well, is when I was 16 years old. Um, And I went to Israel because you are confirmed in the tradition that I was brought up in. And so at that, my father said, do you want to go to Israel or do you want to party? And of course, I said, I want to go to Israel. My sisters had gone before me and it was an amazing experience. I worked on a kibbutz for three weeks and mm. then we traveled around the country for three weeks. For and people that, who are not familiar with the tradition, what's it like to be on a Well, first of all, what is a kibbutz for yeah. people who don't know? And what do you do when you're there? So um, a kibbutz came from sort of the Russian ideal society 
Um, it was for, I mean, you know, it's become a dirty word these days, but the socialist idea that you not in this room, it's not a dirty, <laughs> it's, it, it, in this room, it is not, a, is it not a dirty word and it's not, no, neither is it a poisonous concept. It's just hard to re- see in reality. But yeah, and in this day and age, you're right outside of this safe space, but you are in a safe space, rabbi. Socialism is fine. Well, it really is what the kibbutz ideal was all about is that people would, work according to their ability and be taken care of according to their need. And that was what the kibbutz hmm. was all about. That almost sounds like <laughs> if we all treat each other like human beings and all carry the weight that we're able to carry, we all do better when we all do better. Something like that. Interesting. Paul huh. Wellstone. Yes. Oh, yes. One of my all-time favorites. Yeah. So um, so I went, and it was the first time that it sort of, Felt like I I uh, worked for my food. I would get up every morning at four o'clock. We would pick pears. We'd come back around seven thirty to have some breakfast and go back out because it's such a hot sun that you don't want to be out in the orchards past about you know ten o'clock in the morning. So we did all our work before that, and we didn't get the idea as all the other kibbutzniks did, and that was that you take a very long which is a nap in the middle of the day. The beautiful, That's uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, the equivalent of the siesta, because in Spain it was also very hot in the middle of the day. We missed that that memo. Yes, we did. So we stayed, did. Well, not only in our oh, country, but oh, okay. when we were on the kibbutz, we would stay up and then by like, you know, Seven o'clock, we were drooling in our, in our <laughs> dinner. You know, yeah. everybody and there was still more to do. Ready to have fun. But, so we got that in probably the second week. But um, so it was fun. It was really amazing. We were there during the raid on Entebbe. So one of our, um, one of our kibbutzniks was on that raid and um, survived. And so it, we, he came back to the kibbutz and we had a party and we... It just it was a time that was amazing. So um, it was it was pretty pretty exciting. And that further cemented your it, feeling that it really did. You know, Israel was a amazing country and discerning, and it was all Jewish. And that was again the first time. While I went to seventy percent Jewish high yeah. school, I had never been to a place that. Um, that had was Jewish time driven, and that was very exciting. Well, it was Jewish every time you turned around, yeah. everywhere you looked, every, which yeah. in Iowa, I can't imagine that was the case even when you went to a 70% Missouri? Jew. I'm sorry, Missouri. Yeah, yeah. Missouri. Yeah. Sorry. I was way. close, man. Yeah, I mean, either way. I missed it by either a state. <laughs> Before we talk more about your journey and your work with Temple Israel and their impact on the community here and the frightening state of affairs that we do find ourselves in this day and age, I would like to get to your first song. Which one are we going with first? Adele. Adele. So I love Adele so much, and for multiple reasons. One, she's effortless. She is like a superhero who doesn't even realize just how powerful her gifts are, even when she throws them around. Um, She's one of my very, when we talk about the great informers of the early part of the 21st century, and you picked this particular song, and I would like to know what you like about this song, if you don't mind. Well, first of all, my last name's Zimmerman, and Bob Dylan Zimmerman exactly. wrote it. And I always say my husband must have thought that I was related to Bob Dylan because <laughs> he idolizes well, Bob Dylan. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert, so, are you related to Bob Zimmerman? I am not. Okay, all right. But I did once get into it, 
elevator with his mother and somebody introduced me oh, yeah. to her. I didn't know who she was. This is Rabbi Zimmerman. She goes, I used to have this. Z- I, my name was Zimmerman. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, Interesting. So it was very fun. Uh, but but so this it just touch, touches my heart. The words touch my heart. The idea of what it means to love somebody, sometimes even when they don't love you back in the same way. Oof. And that doesn't change your love for them. And that is beautiful.
That is a good one. Not only a good Bob Dylan song, but Adele, you know, she has a way of doing a cover and making it sound like that's her song. Or maybe, because I know that the big knock on Bob Dylan is maybe he doesn't have the greatest voice in the whole world, <laughs> but he's clearly one of the most influential and covered songwriters in a, a North American Western culture history. And Adele really, really knows her way around a song. It was a great choice right there. Our guest. On this particular edition, episode 29 of the uh, Brian Oak Show podcast is Rabbi Zimmerman, who is the senior rabbi at Temple Israel in southeast Minneapolis. Now, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous facility. Been there for 140 years, exceptionally involved in the community. But your achievements, so the reason I wanted to ask you about your history and your path to, you know, becoming a rabbi and, and writing it out. I mean, you've been the senior rabbi there for, what, 15, 20 years now? Well, I've been there for 32. That's a long time. And I have been the senior rabbi for 19. So here we are, just shy of 20, which is amazing. So you talked about when you were growing up, when you were deciding to make this your path, that it was not common for women. I have an aunt who is now in her mid, possibly late 70s. Sorry, Joanne, if you're listening. Um, I, I wish I knew better, and I'm sorry that I outed you. But she was the only woman in her class at the U of M well back in the day in the, the business division. When she went to the business school, she was the only woman. So when you're in school to do this, is it is it, do you have a class of other people that are pursuing the same thing? Are you the only woman at that time? So I started rabbinical school in 1982. And what you can find, remember I said the first 10 years, 1972, now we're at 10 years, 1982, when I start. And there's just a handful in those first 10 years. My class was the first class that was 40% women. Wow. And people were kind of you know, freaking out a bit. People are like, you're not women, you're a rabbi, it doesn't matter what your gender is. And we all were going, well, yeah, it kind of does <laughs> it matter. It totally does. And we are going to start actually organizing. So we started a women's rabbinic group and we started one just in our seminary and then we branched out to the other seminaries. And some of our professors who were all men were not happy felt quite threatened i was and gonna say there has to be there had to have been a tremendous amount of pushback even when you get to a 40 percent mark yeah. there are still members of and I'm, I, I i use the word orthodoxy more generically than i mean orthodox mm-hmm. or orthodox judaism just people who are part of the establishment right. who are like this is not how i grew up this right. is not what i understand this to be right there had to be continual pushback making your journey even more uphill right so we call that Orthodox with a little O. Okay, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> Always learning. Yeah. Always you learning. <laughs> Giving you some new framing. I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, I think that I didn't realize this, that that was the transition until I started fundraising for a actually feminist studies chair about 20 years later, and then we put out a piece and it showed all the women who were ordained in each of those years. And I was like, that's what was happening. It's an aha moment. So um, I think it was a little interesting. Being at McAllister College, I became a feminist. I mean, without question, I became the strongest of feminists. So for me to then to show up in seminary and have these questions like it shouldn't matter, you're a rabbi, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. And I'm like, okay, this is not 
what I was taught. That's not who I am. Let's start educating. And we started educating the faculty and educating the entire uh, staff at the seminary. And uh, I remember giving my senior sermon and I gave it on my grandmother's strudel recipe Mm. as if an act of feminism of celebrating women's ways of knowing and um and you get a critique afterwards which is usually pretty horrid experience <laughs> most critiques are generally pretty yeah, horrid it's but a public critique Ooh, oh sermon. wow it, it is like in front of really everybody in front of everyone oh no everyone no, no, eating no, no, lunch no, no, no. and you're getting skewered <laughs> it's beautiful um, it's beautiful it doesn't sound beautiful <laughs> it kind of it kind of you know makes you stronger but i you know some of my professors were so taken by it because they didn't really understand what feminism was. And we're, I'm not hitting you over the head. I am celebrating women. That's what I'm doing. And they were like, oh, okay. Um, so it, they went, you know, they, they were in the more learning kind of phase and learning world at that point than they were in a skewering and critiquing. On that point, had your father come around at this point? Um, not quite. Not entirely. <laughs> not quite. Let me ask you this then, without going too deep on it, because I'm not trying, I don't ever want to dig deeper than people want to go. Has he come around at this point, or did he ever come yes, around? Yes, he did. So, right. for a really long time, I think he was a physician, and he did not see himself in my choice. I think that's what I learned through the years. Um, so he would call me and say, I'm reading this like obscure history of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, and what is this, your opinion on this small esoteric, (laughs) you know, theory of this professor from some, you know, seminary somewhere in the world. And I would go, dad, I don't know. (laughs) That is not what I'm studying. I have no idea what you're talking about. So um, I think once he sort of saw that I wasn't going to play in the game of him knowing more than me or not knowing more than me, that it really was when I became the senior rabbi that he began to say, okay, so she is going to be able to take care of herself. She's, She's strong. That's okay. So I think that was the moment for him. Um. And he died, you know, uh, he, he's not here anymore, neither is my mother. So I think that they um, they finally came around when I became the senior rabbi. Did you get pushback from other women? That's a good question. Um, you know, I really spent a lot of time. So there's a sisterhood at yeah. Temple Israel, and I made them my friends. Um, I did not in any way think I was better than them. We did a lot of programming. You know, they were used to the daytime programming, but all these young women my age were working. So we did the same program at night. And we kind of had this, um, that's sort of how change works, right? You don't have to break down what is, but you can build on something better and that worked for a really long time. And then we did something called Kol Isha, which means voice of women. And we did a weekend. And so we really had this great relationship where we were kind of growing together. They got invested in my success. 
I got invested in theirs. And um, it was really wonderful at the beginning. So women were really supportive. I began to see how women were against each other, um, not necessarily against me. And it was kind of shocking for me. I was like, wow, we're kind of sometimes our worst enemies. My mother and I had a half-hour conversation today. She's a feminist. We were talking politics, which we don't have to go into here a whole lot. But she just said, when will women support other women as candidates? She Mm -hmm. said, I really thought at this point in my life that women would get behind other women more. They're 51% of our population. Uh And that's why I asked that question is that, I am so for a female candidate right now. I think it's long overdue with a hundred years since the suffrage movement. And yet I, I put something on social media and 80% of the pushback was from other women yep. trying to tear down the female candidates. And I'm like, what is going on here? Right. You know, it's amazing right. that my mom, well, her words were, when will we no longer be second class citizens? Mm-hmm. I was hoping at this time in my life that maybe we wouldn't be second class citizens, which is part of the reason why we're, we're doing this month. And again, I don't think we're changing anything this month, but no. but well. we, but I think that it's important for square, white, cisgendered, <laughs> middle-aged men like Sean and I to add our voice to the chorus because I just want I want us all to be the same thing, and you know, and and frankly, there's probably a little bit that's overdue to kind of swing things in the other direction. Um, women, I there's so many good ones, and, and, and but just like men, I, it, it's it just it's all so crazy all the time. Maybe, and again, probably not in our lifetimes, which is a terrible thing. You know, this brings me to my next question for you, Rabbi, is I know you don't do this for the accolades. I know that you are not as hard as you've worked, as uphill as the battle has been, as impassioned as you have been. You're not doing this for any laurels or applets on your vestments. You are doing this because it's something you truly believe in. But I would like to say that you uh, being, you are the first senior rabbi of a temple that uh, that has a congregation of more than 2,000 families involved in the entire United States. And A, I think that's very impressive. So congratulations. B, why do you think it happened in Minnesota before it happened anywhere else? Well, first of all, I think that's what I love about Minnesota, right? Coming from Missouri, that's pretty conservative, not in the, you know, I love the word conservative because conserving tradition and conserving things can be beautiful, but a reactionary state, I would say Missouri is. Mm -hmm. Ferguson happened there. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not a place that I felt like I could thrive. Um, And coming to Minnesota that at the time had such a support of so many people who were in need. And I was Mm. like, oh, my goodness, this is remarkable. This state is remarkable. All the social service agencies that thrived, um, the feminist caucus that I was an intern when I was at McAllister for taught me I didn't want to go into politics. (laughs) (laughs) Taught me I didn't want to go into politics. politics. Nobody should want that. (laughs) However, I married a politician. Yes, Um, you did. And I, um, you know, so, and as my husband says, there's more politics in her job than there is in my job. Uh, Good one. Congregations can definitely be political. But I think, the idea that 
we are in a state that sees the best. Um, so when the position opened and I had been number two for a while, I somebody came to me and said, you better figure out what you want to do. The senior rabbi is retiring. What do you want to do? And I was like in a split second said, I'm tired of being number two. I'm done with that. Um, I have to think about whether I want to be number one or not, <laughs> but let's figure that out. So I threw my hat into the ring. And it wasn't totally for sure. I was there for 14 years as an assistant and associate. And somebody um, talked to a person in the movement. We were part of the reform movement. And um, they said, if her name was Mark, would you have any questions? Wow. Mm. And that was the question to ask. And that's when they realized, no. And so then we went forward and I became the senior rabbi. They said yes. Before we get to your next song, because I love that every guest is required to bring at least two songs forward. And there's always going to be a music element to this podcast. And I love one of my favorite insights into people. Some like to sit down and eat. And we're going to talk about an important chef that's coming to Temple Israel shortly. But the other thing is I like to hear what people like in music. Now, yes. I like playful sparring over music, and I like to jab people a little bit, but there's no wrong answer when it comes to any sort of artistic appreciation. And so music is important to me. But before we get to your next song, you brought up your husband, who is Representative Frank Hornstein on the DFL side, District 61A. And I had the privilege of meeting a younger Mr. Hornstein way back in the day. Prior to my 25 years in the broadcast industry, I spent six years working on the phone canvas of the Clean Water Action Alliance. And so there in his role as an advocate for legislation and various things that Clean Water Action was working on, he would occasionally come and give us briefings. The way that worked when you run the phone canvas is, you know, you have a half hour briefing to you know, amp up the troops, get the latest information, whatever the case may be, and then you hit the phones for four hours and pester people on their phones. And Frank would come in, and I always enjoyed Frank. He was... Wow, I wish I knew the exact right <laughs> words. There's nobody quite like Frank Hornstein. He was obviously inspired, obviously motivated. To this day, clearly remains motivated, but did fancy himself something of a comedian and i can only imagine i can only imagine your life married to him low these many years that you have been on the business end of some of both his best jokes and some of his worst jokes almost interminably is that fair it is fair. It is fair. <laughs> I, know he'll, I know he'll listen later, so I appreciate your diplomacy. Um, but I always enjoyed his company, and I enjoyed his passion. And so when I found out the two of you were together, it did not surprise me at all, and in fact made me quite happy. But he continues to work and be an advocate for the things that he believed in back then, which is equality and decency and the environment, or at least I hope it does. I haven't actually followed his voting record recently. 
It's there. And he is very funny. Let me just say. He oh, I know he's laugh. funny. That's I know good. he is. He That's good that you laugh. covered that. He makes me laugh. He does. And that is something I think is an essential ingredient, humor. Yes. In every marriage. Absolutely. Oh, couldn't agree more. I guess the only point I was trying to make is that he is very funny and he was always entertaining. <laughs> and for these young, up and coming, bright eyed idealists who were working in Clean Water Action, as funny and inspiring and hard working as he was, he also occasionally throws out a little bit of a groaner where you're like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> little pun. Every comedian. Does. Yes, that they is, do. Again, I am not. I am not Every talking trash comedian. about Representative Hornstein at all, aka Rabbi Zimmerman's husband. I'm just saying, I I miss him, and I just I, for some reason he sticks out in my mind more than almost anyone from that era. Before we talk about what's coming up at Temple Israel, and I do, I hate to hit on that stuff, but we got to talk a little bit about what's been going on in New York, and frankly, the world recently we'll hit that before we're done let's hear another song you went with Joni Mitchell what what do you love about Joni Mitchell well she is I mean there's um, a lot there's a lot on the plate there but I'm just wondering what you personally love about Joni Mitchell she just speaks truth I think and the circle game for me is quintessential Joni Mitchell song and I loved it as a kid as a college student at McAllister, but I love it even more now as a mom because I have kids in their 20s and the section on Circle Game about your 20s, you know, like you realize that the dreams you had, they're like done. You finished them. You graduated from college, you know, whatever. My kids have done a lot of amazing things and met a lot of their personal goals, but don't worry because they're going to be more amazing dreams for you to conquer and to have. Don't think that it's gone or done. Because I think kids in their 20s today think that they have to keep giving things up and they feel the loss and the anxiety of that. And I think that song speaks to the fact there'll be many more dreams for you. There'll be many more circles in life for you. Hold on. Don't think that life is over in your 20s find that new path and it will be okay so yesterday a child came out to wonder Over ten clear frozen streets 
Exceptional choice right there. It makes me think of Victoria Williams' song, The Century Tree, where it's never too late and things continue to happen and inspiration can be found where you find it. You know, someone once told me, and I maybe it's no cliche, maybe I read it on a poster on a wall in a locker room, I don't remember, but the luckiest people are the hardest working people and you just have to work at it. You have to keep your eyes open and you have to think about things and it can come from anywhere. Our guest is Rabbi Zimmerman from Temple Israel in Uptown in South (laughs) Minneapolis. And before we get to what is on deck for Temple Israel, 
I want to talk and just ask briefly, and we don't have to delve deeply into this because, frankly, I'm not educated enough to do it. But earlier in the podcast, we talked about the rich, important, historical tradition of the Jewish people going back millennia, but it has been a history of struggle, and it doesn't seem to have any end in sight. And I'm speaking about domestically. I'm not talking about abroad right now because I feel like that's four other podcasts in its entirety. But here, just late last year, there was a spate, frankly, for me, well too close together and well too sort of focused to be just a random random acts or serendipitous, but a spate of attacks on Jewish people. And I don't I don't even know what the question is I'm asking. Why? Why won't it stop? And why does it why does it persist? Because it's convenient? Is it is it an echo of of Nazism? Is it people being afraid of who and where we are right now? I don't know why the Jewish people continue to be a target, and I would like to understand your perspective on that. I know it's a huge question, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I just, it, it, when you read like nine attacks in 12 days or whatever right. the numbers were, right. it's startling to me. Right. So it's really um, overwhelming. I, I do a lot of interfaith work, and I believe interfaith dialogue is the antidote to religious violence. I really do. I think that's really important. Um, And people constantly ask me, like, I can't believe anti-Semitism is on the rise. That is so unbelievable. Jews seem to have found their way and assimilated in this society, in this country, for the time that you've been here, have been successful. And that's the insidiousness of anti-Semitism, because it takes that success and turns it against us. That is what is the most complicated. And so what it looks like is that we believe in education. We have a very strong value of doing your best in whatever you choose to do. And anti-Semitism takes that to the point where it says, you're the puppet masters. You are the ones that are behind every movement for liberation. You're the ones who are toppling it. And we're saying, what? What are you talking about? We believe in when we all do better, we all do better. That is Paul Wellstone's signature piece. He was Jewish. I mean, absolutely. So what is this that's being used against us? So I think that's one aspect of anti-Semitism. The other aspect is that when your life isn't good, and this is why the middle class, the rural world, the the you know, outstate, all of that, when they when people aren't doing well, they try and find a scapegoat. Jews are notoriously that scapegoat. Why? Because we are a minority you can count. There are 14 million Jews in the world. If the Holocaust hadn't happened, we'd have 60 million Jews in the world. 14 million Jews in the world, you can begin to create a terror to all people, people of color, LGBTQIA community, everybody by beginning with the Jews, because that really begins to put fear into society and then gets people to back off from any kind of liberation. 
So anti-Semitism has always been a different kind of ism, right? But for thousands of years, there's there's isms that have come and gone, but it doesn't seem to, it, it ebbs and flows, certainly, but it doesn't seem to vanish, and I don't understand the persistence. It blows my mind. It is the oldest ism, at least from the book of Exodus, mm-hmm. <laughs> it begins. Yeah. Um, and so it it is an interesting world when you need a scapegoat to blame your troubles on which is, again, an aggression that is human but needs a higher power or a um, super ego to keep in check. When it doesn't want to be kept in check, then it attacks violently. And that's where we have to control it. But it stemmed then from insecurity and fear, right? It stems from Fear of a reality, often of an economic downturn, Mm -hmm. of something that's happening in society. And so they want to blame somebody for complicated um, issues in the world. And when you don't want to see the nuances or the complications, then you find an easy answer. And the easy answer seems to be blame the Jews. I think it also stems from, oh, and you just, you articulated it right there, from ignorance. I think it was Mark Twain who said that travel is the death of racism. And Mm -hmm. once you expose yourself to cultures, once you actually sit down across the table, whether you're breaking bread, whether it's a brief conversation, whether it is simply wandering around someone else's home and opening yourself up to it, you don't have a choice but to think and to open your eyes and to expose yourself. And perhaps that won't entirely change your mind, but it does not allow you to blindly ignore the fact that your fellow humans are your fellow humans. Rabbi Zimmerman, you have been the senior rabbi at Temple Israel for nearly 20 years. In your time there, in addition to being, I don't know if you're comfortable with the term or not, but something of a pioneer in the path that you've chosen, have you had other effects on the congregation? I know, I mean, because beliefs that are millennia old are beliefs that are millennia old. They're not easily changed. And the the amount of change has been, if you compare it over the constant timeline, Relatively radical in the last 100 years. Is that a fair thing to say? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you are informing your congregation, I'm sure there are traditions that are long held that you reinforce, that you establish things about how we treat one another, what the right things to do are, you know, beliefs in a higher power, whatever it may be. But changes are happening all of the time. What do you think is the number one change that you've most affected in your time as senior rabbi at Temple Israel? I know it's a big question. I'm sorry to ask them, but I mean, obviously you've already had an impact just by being senior rabbi, but also I know that you, being a feminist, let's be honest, any religion, pick them, feminism is not really a mainstay of almost any major religion out there. So that alone, but I mean, do you feel in your 20, more than 20 years there, but almost 20 years of being senior rabbi, have you seen other changes come to light that you you realize you had an impact on? So one of the um, important impacts that I've had at Temple is that um, I often am the only woman around the table. And so I'm representing Judaism, I'm representing women, I'm representing so much more in everything I do. 
And I have a tough part of me. Like, there's a part of me that, like, will call what I see to be reality <laughs> and not be afraid to say, this is it. Um, and I think that I have, um, you know, I don't need to take care of everybody around the table as I have been taught as a woman from being, you know, born. That's my job. However, that tough part of me is showing that women absolutely have that leadership that's very important. Um, so I think that's important. I think I have been a role model as a woman for young women, girls in the congregation. And um, just where you were just asking me when we were listening to the music about sort of being a role model for, for young women. And my daughter is in rabbinical school right now. Um, and so <clears throat> the idea of helping to promote women at every turn and every way has been something I have brought to the congregation. And it's really amazing to experience that, not only of my own daughter, but we have had somebody in rabbinical school every year I have been there. Not only one person, but several people at different times. And I feel really good about creating leadership in the Jewish world of tomorrow. Are more and more congregations becoming open to the, I mean, I know we live, we live in Minneapolis, St. Paul, this area in the upper Midwest is something of an oasis. When you talked about rural communities, still not understanding, still not quite there yet. Are we finding with all of these young women going into rabbinical school, are we finding more and more congregations open to the idea of allowing women into the rabbinical order? Yeah. We, ha we are. We are. I mean, there was a, a time where women were actually the majority, where there would be 50% men applying to seminary, 50% women, and there were 60% women in a class, which if you do the math, then there weren't the, the men weren't brought in and accepted right. because they weren't ready. Um, and so I think that Many people at that point were saying, you know, eh, oh, my goodness, the rabbinate's becoming female dominated and when men won't want to go into it. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding? Um, I'm just like. Oh my goodness! Really? Yeah. Thank, well, you, you, thank you, you, you for your insights. <laughs> You've met men before, right? They can be a little <laughs> fragile once in a while. For everything they have negative to say about women, I've noticed that men can be just a touch fragile touch. and a little we'll touchy touch once in a while. A touch, touch, and not recognizing their fragility, which is even tougher. Oh, um, why doesn't anyone? You know, Sean, when will the white middle-aged man finally get his day? I don't That's know. I'm, I'm waiting. Asking. I'm waiting. <laughs> it happened. Oh, Enjoy oh, it. Did I miss that? Be done. Dang it. Um, before we get out of here, uh, and we do have to get out of here because we've gone long, um, tell me about, uh, you have a guest coming up at Temple Israel in mid-May who I would like to hear what you have to say about him. So we um, invite anyone who is interested to hear Yotam Odalengi. He is a chef. He is Israeli. 
His partner in business is Palestinian. Whoa, 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 whoa. That happens? People actually get along and talk to each other wow. despite their divisive backgrounds? Yes, they do. Interesting. And their view is that it is over food where that can happen. And he is going to speak about the power of breaking bread. It's exactly what you were saying. It's the whole thing. That's Sit down right. and talk to people and, and you'll find out, you know what? There are people of every race, creed, stripe, color, belief that are jerks. And then there are a lot of people, I think the vast majority of them, that are closer to the central notion of being a human being than not. Well, a lot is happening on the streets of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, Bethlehem, Ramallah, that you would you would be shocked at knowing what you turn on the TV or the radio and hear all the strife that's happening in that region of the world. But there are so many people who are actually coming together. It's inspiring to be on the ground. I wish everybody could actually go and witness it and experience it rather than get their information from the news. Well, that's not very exciting to the news. I mean, <laughs> from, from a news perspective, nobody really wants to hear that everything's just fine. That's that's a pretty short program, but if we can show... I'm not sure I would say it's fine, but no. there's a lot of amazing no, no. things well, going and yeah. th- But that's precisely the case. So, um, And that's happening on May 14th? May 14th in the evening. And um, where do people find out more about Temple Israel? Because I'm sure there's a website. I'm sure they can swing by any time. Let me ask this. When you have your regular services, because I don't I don't really know a ton about modern Judaism. Can someone who is not a, a member of the faithful, can they come by just to learn? Can they come by to attend? Can they come by to see? Is that something that's allowed? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every Friday evening at 6 p.m. we have Shabbat services. And um, people are invited, and you can experience it, and it's wonderful. Um, each Shabbat service has a unique style, mm-hmm. so uh, try out many and see which one you like the best. I've only been once, and it was for a bat mitzvah, but there were there scrolls. So I'm a, I'm a fan of ancient tradition. Uh-huh. I'm a huge buff of history, uh-huh. but there were aspects of it. Like I felt uncomfortable, so I sat in the back and just quietly watched and tried to absorb and to learn. But scrolls were coming out, and there were observations of ancient rituals that delighted me. It was really fun to be there. Is there a website people can go to? TempleIsrael.com. Okay. Um, This has been, Rabbi Zimmerman, very enlightening. And I feel like we didn't even start to scratch the surface. (laughs) I really don't, because there's so, so, so much more to talk about. So if it works out, I know you have a very busy schedule. I would love to have you back sometime in the not-too-distant future. I'd be honored. Thank you. Thank you very much. Again, if you want to know more, templeisrael.com. Rabbi Zimmerman, even though she might not be comfortable with the word, an absolute pioneer and a very, very insightful person to talk to. Sean, we got a dip, man. I can't believe it. It's just... Flew by once again. What a, what a terrific I, conversation. I, Thank I, you for your service and for all the people that you've shown your faith and, and helped along the way. Because that's, yes, you're a pioneer, but you've also just spent so much time helping and serving other people. And that's so selfless. So thank you. Thank you. I promised I was going to keep this one under an hour. <laughs>
How'd that work out, Sean? That's not going to happen. That's not really what I do. I'm not very good at committing to timelines, details, not necessarily my strong suit. Before we get out of here, I do want to thank AudioQuip.com, who have provided us with all this wonderful professional-level equipment here in the studio. It is the Smart Start MN Studios, and we're going to dip, and we will be back again later on this week. Got a couple more podcasts coming up this week. In fact, February is going to be a little chaotic, but we'll talk more about that next time. Before we leave, you know, music is a weird thing, how it bubbles up in your head, right? I love songs, and I love music, and it is, as I mentioned the other night, I spent a lot of time listening to music just the other night and broke out records I haven't listened to in years. And to this day, music has always been and remains my very, very favorite drug. Sitting down, good headphones on, and listening to records. I have to put the headphones on, otherwise the wife and child get irritated. You know how that works, (laughs) right? So, but just listening to things, and I was listening to a bunch of music, but then sometimes you wake up in the morning and a song is in your head, and you're like, what is that song? What is that song? And the song we're going to hear as we wrap things up tonight was in my head this morning, and I'm like, I haven't heard this in years and years and years. I know it, I know it, and I kept trying to get to some sort of lyric that I remembered properly, and then I got there. Terry Lynn, Kingston Logic, on The Brian Oak Show. Kingston Logic. Logic. Kingston Logic. Want to find it, see it, get it, be rich now or just forget it, earn it, steal it, beg it, buy it, can't stay broke, you gotta try, dream it, plan it, chance it, risk it, bring your guns, machete, ratchet, load it, lock it, pockets, drop it, I'm gone, long guns, automatic. Time and find it while your friends and war they climb it, reach it, like it, reach it, take it, dog is sleeping, don't you wake it, have it, hold it, clench it, hide it, cops with goods and guns beside it, fence it, rail it, beat it, stay it, who get caught, them cops will jail it. It look to circumstab it, back it, knob it, cough it, jeep it, chalk it, pull no stunt, you kick the bucket, freeze it, please it, cock it, squeeze it, puncture brain, nobody needs it, chuck it, trace it, pick it, waste it, punch it, bore your face and space it. Oh,
Logic. 